Do any of you have a person in your life that's uh, particularly difficult to shop for, to find gifts for, uh, particularly around Christmas or, or even Valentine's Day? Uh, I have been told many times before that I am that difficult to shop for a person. Uh, and they always use this word because I am particular. Uh, and I graciously accept that as a compliment, meaning that I have excellent taste. Uh, but <laughs> apparently, there are a lot of people in the world who are like me, who have very high standards uh, for gifts, uh, especially when it comes to accepting them and keeping them. This past year in the U.S., it was estimated that $170 billion in gifts were returned after Christmas. We have some, some high standards uh, for gifts, but when it comes to giving those gifts, it kind of puts the giver in an awkward position. I mean, what are you supposed to do? Do you just offer the best that you can think of and just hope it works out? Well, to be totally honest, I'm not sure how to answer that question when it comes to giving gifts. I don't have that answer. But uh, this morning, I want to tell you how we meet the lofty standards of, of those people in our life that should be offering these good gifts. How do we meet the, the lofty standards of Yahweh when it comes to offering him the gift of worship and, and sacrifice? So this morning, we're not talking about offering presents but as we look at Malachi 1, I do want us to understand how we offer worship and sacrifice that isn't returned like a Christmas gift. Uh, in the book of Malachi, it's a beautiful little book. It was the first book I went through in Sunday school with our teens when I got here. Uh, Malachi the prophet just rips back the curtain to expose all of the, the horrible sins that the people and the priests were committing and it allows the truth of God to shine in and expose the sins of the people. In this section of Malachi 1, specifically, Malachi is exposing the priests and their sacrifices to God. Malachi accuses the priests of doing something that, that you are prone to do as well. It's that when it comes to worship, you hope God will accept your best, but often you attempt to offer less than that. We want God to accept our best, but sometimes we want to be able to offer a little bit less. And this is what the priests were forgetting. This is what we can forget as well. It's that because of his nature, Yahweh often and always actually has lofty standards for worship. And so you must meet his standards. His standards for worship are, are so lofty that they reveal his character. The standard for worship shows us who he is. And so as we look at Malachi chapter one this morning, I want us to see the character of God as we consider the sacrifice that God requires. And what we see in this, this first section of Malachi one is that the father's requirement for sacrifice displays his holy justice. And if you would, allow me just to briefly explain what I mean by, by holiness and justice before we look at how his demands for sacrifice display those attributes. Holiness is, is God's preeminent attribute. It's, it lies at the very core of who he is. It describes his, his separation from everything that's created. He is transcendent. 
And it also describes his moral perfection. He is also separate from sin, totally separate. He is described, Yahweh is described as the Holy One of Israel. He's totally unique, totally removed from evil. He's morally flawless, and he exercises this rule over his creation. And so Yahweh's holiness means that he cannot tolerate sin. Sin, which is these actions that contradict God's nature. They wage war on his moral perfection. Right? When you lie, you're contradicting Yahweh's truthfulness, his faithfulness. And in his holiness, he cannot tolerate sin. That's holiness. Hold that over here. Justice refers to the portion of God's character that must deal with sin. Not only can he not tolerate it, he cannot overlook it either. He, he must punish what is evil because it contradicts his character. When you lie, you contradict God's character. And because God must do what is right, because he must do what is just, he must punish that sin. Now, those descriptions of, of holiness and justice, that's like me giving you an ice cube and saying, here, this is Antarctica. <laughs> it, it's part of the picture, but it's, it's so vast that we can never get it all in one glimpse. Uh, but for our purposes this morning, those descriptions are sufficient for us as we look at his holiness and his justice. So how does God's demand for sacrifice reveal both his holiness and his justice. Well, we see this in the book of Malachi, starting in verse 6, that God demands a perfect sacrifice. Speaking as, as God's mouthpiece, Malachi begins this systematic condemnation of the priests, and he starts with a comparison. Malachi 1, verse 6, a son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am the father... Where is my honor? And if I am the master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts to you priests who despise my name? And yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? So Malachi starts pointing to these relationships, this father-son relationship, this master-servant relationship. And in both of these relationships, he says there is a need for one person to honor the other. God says, I'm the father, and you're not honoring me. I'm the master, and you refuse to give reverence to me. Instead of coming before me with this honor and this respect, you actually hate my name. You despise it, and, and you protest. You say, in what way were we despising your name? And Yahweh says, I'm the holy one. My uniqueness demands perfection. Which brings us to this all-important question, how is it that the priests were actively dishonoring God's name, refusing to show him the honor that was due him? Well, Malachi gives us a glimpse of this in verse 7. Speaking for God, he says, you offer defiled food on my altar, but say... In what way have we defiled you? Well, by saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. 
Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? So these priests were bringing these offerings before the Lord, offerings that were were totally unacceptable, offerings that clearly contradict the expectations that God had laid out in the Leveret Law. We see it in Leviticus and in other places in the Old Testament. The requirement for sacrifice is perfection. But these priests are saying, well, let's bring the animals with the broken legs, the animals that are sick, the animals that are going to die anyways. It's a whole lot easier that way. And as they go about sacrificing these animals, they justify their actions and they say, what's the big deal? God doesn't care what kind of sacrifices we make. And because the priests cannot grasp the severity of the issue, God offers them a very vivid illustration to get the concept through their thick heads. Sometimes we need people to be blunt with us, and the Lord is incredibly blunt with the priest here. He says, offer it to your governor. Do you think he'll accept it from you? Now, I want you to imagine just for a moment that you're eating dinner tomorrow night. It's about seven. It's a celebratory meal at someone's birthday in your family, and you're in the, the middle of this. You've got this perfectly cooked, medium-rare ribeye basted in garlic and rosemary and thyme and butter. And these perfectly done baked potatoes as well, crispy skin, fluffy interior. You roast some carrots, little dollops of honey so that they're perfectly caramelized. And you're enjoying the time with your family, celebrating someone's birthday. Then all of a sudden, there's a knock at the door. And you try to ignore it because it's interrupting family time. And you continue stuffing your mouth with all the delicious food, and the knock continues. And begrudgingly, you get out of your chair, you walk to the door, you open it, and Governor Whitmer is on your doorstep. (laughs) Out of respect, maybe keeping some things inside your mouth, (laughs) you, you invite her inside. She sits at your table with your family with your meal, under your roof. And there's an awkward five minutes or so of small talk. And eventually, she looks around and says, is there something that I can have to eat? And the light bulb in your head turns on. And you go, I have just the right thing for this moment. I've been saving something for a moment just like this. So you scurry off to the garage, to that deep freezer that everybody seems to have, and you start digging in the back of the deep freezer, and all the way at the bottom, underneath the chicken nuggets and everything else that you've stored for winter, you find exactly what you were looking for. It's in a plastic bag that's got a couple holes in it, an excessive amount of freezer burn on it, a touch of mold, but you found it. You found the tofu that you had been saving for this unique occasion. And so you come back from the garage, you plop it on a plate, you stick it in the microwave, two minutes, the microwave dings, and you plop it in front of Governor Whitmer. And as you're stuffing your mouth with your steak and potato and carrots, you say, bon appetit. (laughs) You might be tempted to say, well, that's what she deserves. But how do you think that is going to fly? This is what God is saying to the priest. Do you really think that I, 
the Holy One of Israel, the creator of the universe, the Lord of hosts, who has armies of angels at his command. Do you think I will accept that? Your governor wouldn't accept this sacrifice, and yet you bring me these disgusting sacrifices hoping to secure my blessing? Look at verse 9. This is what the people are saying to the priests. Entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us. While this is being done by your hands, will he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? Are you really hoping that you can secure my blessing by offering something that doesn't even come close to the standard that I have set? And yet somehow you feel insulted when I don't accept it. Well, verse 10 shows us just how great the severity of this problem is. What would God have these priests do to solve this problem of horrible, imperfect worship that doesn't meet God's standards? Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. This is a drastic step that the Lord suggests. He says he would rather one person go to the temple and put up barricades so that nobody could walk inside, so that no offering could be offered. He says, close up shop, go home. I would rather have no sacrifice than wrong sacrifice. Because my holiness demands perfection. And God tells these proud priests, cut it out. And if you won't worship me in a way that meets my holy, perfect standards, I'll find somebody else who will. This is what he says in verse 11. For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name, and a pure offering for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And this is a bit of a bitter pill to swallow. This truth that that God is teaching in this verse hurts our pride, but this is the truth. God does not need your worship. He demands it, but he doesn't need it. He says he will always be honored. He will always be glorified. And if we don't do it in a way that pleases him, he'll raise up others that will glorify him. So I ask you this morning, Are you ignoring God's requirements for worship? Are you missing that that mark of perfection that he demands in worship? Are you, in essence, offering tofu to a king? Because God is holy, and God is great, and he demands perfect worship and sacrifice. And if that's not a big enough problem for us, a big enough hurdle to get over, we actually see that he raises the stakes in verses 12 to 14. It's that God demands 
Not just a perfect sacrifice, but he demands a joyful sacrifice as well. And the last three verses here of chapter, chapter 1, God digs even deeper into the hearts of the priests, and he shows not only do they have a problem externally with their actions, but it goes much deeper than that. There's a problem with their motives. Look at verse 12. But you, the priests, profane it, the sacrificial system, and that you say, the table of the Lord is defiled. And its fruit, its food is contemptible. You also say, oh, what a weariness. And you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick. Thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? And what we begin to see in this first chapter of Malachi is that the priests think the offerings that they bring to God, they don't really matter. We do it, we secure God's blessing, we move on. That's incorrect, but it's what they thought, and it's what they were doing. And verse 13 really highlights the main point of this problem. Fundamentally, the priests' wrong worship flowed from rotten hearts. That phrase, oh, what a weariness, sums up the priest's attitude toward worshiping God in a way that pleased him. Rather than being filled with joy, rather than delighting in the opportunity to worship a God who who loves, who saves, who blesses, they viewed their task of worship as tiresome, burdensome, difficult obligation. Now, don't get me wrong. I I don't think I would make it as a priest because it seems like an incredibly demanding job to butcher a lamb in the way that God requires. It was a difficult job. But at the very core in their heart when they said, this no longer is a joy, it's no longer a delight, but this is a terrible obligation and I hate it, right there was the problem. Because there was no joy in their worship, no joy in their sacrifice, they started to to cut corners. What is the least costly sacrifice that I can offer to secure God's blessing? I've got it. Let's go to somebody else's field late at night, and I'll steal their lamb, and I'll bring it, and I'll sacrifice it to the Lord. That way, it doesn't cost me anything. Or, I'm going to get another lamb, one that's already sick or one that has a broken leg. It's not going to make it on its own, so why not offer that one to God? Write it off as a, a, a net zero loss. I, I know it's a tiring process to, to offer sacrifices that God wants, so let's just cut some of the corners, secure his blessing, and move on. Well, what does God have to say about that? Look at verse 14. But cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. 
And right here is where we see God's justice begin to be displayed in the sacrifices that he requires. He says that for those whose worship does not reflect his holy nature, to the one who does not honor God as father and master, God says, I will render punishment. Cursed be the deceiver. And the curse that God is talking about is part of the covenantal curses in the last part of Deuteronomy. Curses that literally led to death. Which leaves us to wonder, why so severe a punishment? Maybe the priests were right. Maybe, maybe the sacrificial system isn't a big deal. But God says, no, this is a huge deal. To the one who neglects my holiness, he's cursed. Why? Well, because Yahweh is the king of the universe, the commander of angels, the holy one of Israel. He deserves a perfect sacrifice that flows from a joyful heart. That is the sacrifice that God requires. Now, if you remember our, our big idea at the beginning, I claim that because of Yahweh's nature, he has standards for worship, standards for sacrifice, and you must meet those standards. But this is the problem. We just examined those standards. Perfection, total joy, and guess what? You can't meet those standards. I can't meet those standards. A sacrifice always offered from total perfection, always offered with complete and utter joy, delighting in God. Yahweh's very own nature, his holiness and his justice have made his standards unobtainable. And yet here we are on a Sunday, a group of Christians gathered together to worship, to partake in the Lord's Supper, how can that be? How are you and I able to offer worship to God when his standards are so unobtainable? And this is where we transition into the New Testament and we see the glory of God. The son's substitutionary sacrifice reveals Yahweh's loving graciousness. Praise God this morning that he did not sit back in apathy as he saw our plight, that we were totally unable to offer the worship that he deserves. Praise the Lord. He did not sit back to watch us suffer underneath the hand of his justice. But no, Jesus became the substitutionary sacrifice to offer what we could not. And what we see as we examine the New Testament is that everything that God requires in sacrifice, Jesus was. Jesus offered himself as the perfect sacrifice. Just as the sacrificial lambs that the priest in Malachi's time were supposed to be offering needed to be perfect, well, 400 years later, as Jesus was walking the earth, God's standards had not changed. The sacrifice still needed to be perfect. And we see in 1 Peter 3 that Jesus met that standard. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The just or the perfect, 
for the unjust, the imperfect, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Jesus himself became the perfect sacrifice. And as the perfect sacrifice, God's own perfection, appeasing God's own justice, Jesus suffered for you and for me so that we could have access to God, that he might bring us to God. And the weight of that sacrifice was enormous. In the hours leading up to his death, Jesus went to a garden filled with olive trees to pray. And there he asked his disciples to watch, to pray with him, to wait. And then he went a little further into the garden with the intention of praying. And Jesus, God in human flesh, collapsed to the ground in anguish. He spoke to the Father in praying, asking that there might be some other way to purchase redemption. And Jesus, the the Son of God, was so distraught, right? This one who had cast out demons, this one who had walked on water, calmed the storms, the one who had healed the lame, so distraught was Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, so distraught over the weight of sin that he would bear, that he would carry alone, that the blood vessels in his body began to burst. Just recently, I read a story of a father who had taken his three children uh, to a pool to go swimming. After several hours of fun, they decided it was time to go. They began packing up, and they were all at the car. Uh, They got the car seats all loaded. Everything was packed in. And the father discovered with horror that only two of his children were in the car. And so he sprinted back to the pool, and he saw his little boy unconscious beneath the surface of the water. And so without hesitation, this father dove into the pool, pulled his son from the water, began resuscitation efforts, got him breathing, rushed him to the hospital. And after many hours of overnight tests and observation, the boy was found to be safe from drowning with no lasting or damaging effects. And so that night, as the, the father in the hospital put his son to bed, He sat there watching his son's chest rise and fall rhythmically, watching him breathing, wondering and being amazed that tragedy was avoided. And then he drifted off to sleep. The next morning, as he woke up in the hospital chair, he he opened his eyes and, and looked at his son's face. And with shock, he realized that there were these bloody blotches underneath the skin of his son. And frantically, he called for a doctor to come help and to explain what was going on and to fix what was wrong. And tenderly, the the doctor walked into the room and he explained that likely as the boy had realized that he was drowning, that there was nothing he could do to save himself. The terror that gripped his little heart had caused him to scream out beneath the water so loudly for his father that the force of his scream had burst vessels in his face. And it was in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus was so distraught that his body began to break apart in horror. As he prayed to the Father, Jesus is seeking encouragement from the one place that he can get it, encouragement from the Father's presence, but instead he found silence 
Silence that if this is even possible, crescendoed all the way to the cross where he experienced all the horrors of hell. Hell, which is this complete and total abandonment by God. And it was your sin, it was my sin, it was the thought of bearing the weight of that sin that caused God incarnate to stumble under the load. But Jesus had to because God's loving graciousness drove him to offer the only perfect sacrifice that there ever has been, that there ever will be. The sacrifice had to be Jesus because only he could meet that standard of perfection. But we see that Jesus is not only the perfect sacrifice, but Jesus became the joyful sacrifice as well. And it is unfathomable to me how Jesus could be so gripped by the terror of bearing the weight of sin, experiencing the rejection of the Father, and yet somehow face what laid before him on the cross with joy. But that's exactly what Hebrews 12 teaches. The author of Hebrews is in the middle of this very powerful argument, and he gives us this magnificent glimpse of Jesus' heart as, he's, as his death approached. We see this in Hebrews 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, Jesus, this author and finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What was the joy that Jesus looked forward to as he walked toward his fate on the cross? Because there there is nothing enjoyable about the Roman method of execution that we call crucifixion. Nothing enjoyable. So what joy was it that compelled Christ with determination and with joy to march toward his own murderous execution? Well, we see it here in small part, in Hebrews 12, that he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus' joy was that he could sit down next to the Father, having finished the redemptive work, and he could hear the endless praise of countless saints and heavenly beings exclaiming, worthy is the lamb that was slain, worthy to receive Power and riches and wisdom, strength and honor and glory and blessing. You are worthy. Christian, a large portion of the joy that was set before Jesus as he marched toward his murder was that you would be able to offer pleasing worship to God as his child. Jesus was was so overcome with dread And he he collapsed to the ground as he heard the silence from the halls of heaven. And yet, lifted by the thought that his sacrifice would create an eternal community of zealous worshipers of Almighty God, Jesus joyfully gave himself as a perfect sacrifice for you and for me. That kind of sacrifice ought to totally transform you. If you had plans to meet with a friend for coffee and they showed up 30 minutes late, and their excuse was, I'm sorry, I was run over by an 18-wheeler, you would not believe them. If they walked into that coffee shop having hit by an 18-wheeler, you would know something was different about them. 
Everything about them would change. Through the gospel, you have experienced the full force of a life-transforming event, and everything about you should be different. And I pray this morning that you are not going about your life spiritually with the same apathy and lack of care as the priest in Malachi's day. The priest in Malachi's day treated God like this cosmic vending machine. You punch in the code, you pay the money, and out comes the blessing. But the priest didn't even go that far. They just pounded on the glass saying, Lord, where is your blessing? And I hope you don't view your spiritual life, your call to offer worship pleasing to the Lord as burdensome or laborious. I hope that for those of you who have come face to face with the glory of God in the gospel, you realize that any worship you offer him will never be enough to repay him for what he has done for you. And your worship should overflow with joy. So friend, if you have understood the sacrifice that Jesus made for you, if you have cast your life down, laid it at his feet that he would rescue you, if you're living this life of obedience to God, then would you join me as we declare the death of Jesus, that by his death, you and I could be made free.